Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And we're delighted today to be joined by the mayor of Evanston, Dan Biss. Uh, Daniel is has an amazingly interesting story. He grew up, he's from, was born in Akron, Ohio, grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, where his, his parents were music uh, professors at IU. Uh, Dan's interest was mathematics and studied uh, math both at Harvard as an undergrad and MIT as a, as a graduate student. His first job out of college was to be a PhD professor, excuse me, a, a math prof professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, taught that for a while, and then he his interest in politics blossomed. Uh, he and his wife moved to Evanston. He ran for the Illinois General Assembly. The House won in 2010, was elected to the Senate 2012, ran a really impressive and principled campaign for governor in 2018, finishing second in the Democratic primary, and then was elected mayor of Evanston in 2021, has been in office for all, not quite a year, about six, seven, eight months, and is doing some really interesting work, and we're delighted to talk with him today. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, good to see you. Hey, it's great seeing you, John. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Well, I alluded to your your parents uh, being in the, in the music world, and I think one of your brothers as well. So tell me how uh, a mathematician arose from those circumstances. Yeah, they're still trying to figure it out. I mean, in fact, it's not only my parents and my brother. It's just the whole family. My grandmother was a cellist. My other grandmother was a piano teacher. My uncle played the piano, and, and you know, then... Then I sort of showed up with this black sheep, you know, who was fascinated by something that uh, nobody else in the family had done. Uh, but I guess it was my form of teenage rebellion was to, to get into math. And I mean, was it one of those things that even as a, a young kid, it was just what your aptitude was, what your interest was? I mean, was there ever a moment when you thought of, was this so clear to you that this is what, where you wanted to spend your initial intellectual focus? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, not not when I was, you know, let's say seven or something, you know, when I was uh, in elementary school, it was, I had an aptitude for it. I did well, I was a little bit accelerated, but you know, it was just, you know, just going to school and coming home again. But by the time I was probably about a sophomore in high school, I was just completely entranced by the subject, totally in love with it. And I, and I often tell people this, and I, I, I it's true. Um, I kind of skipped the usual, what do you want to be when you grow up period of your life? Because I knew, I knew by the time I was, like I said, a sophomore in high school that I, I wanted to, you know, go to college and grad school for mathematics and wind up being a math professor. And I didn't really think it over or reflect on it very much, not only in high school or, or even in college. And it wasn't until, until later that I began to think, well, I do really love this subject matter, but maybe there are other interests I have that I ought to explore as well. Well, let's, uh, tell us a little bit about teaching math at the University of Chicago. I mean, that must be a, a pretty uh, high, a challenging position. I mean, you have amazingly bright students. T tell a little bit about that. Uh, and you were 25, I think, when you, you started out at U of C. Yeah, let's, let me, that's exactly right. Yeah, I turned 25 that year. Um, you know, um, first of all, unlike um, some academics, I love teaching. Love it. Uh, I love the the feeling of being in the classroom and trying to explain something. I love the one-on-one -on -one work where you're kind of trying to share a material with somebody and find the specific way that breaks through and connects with them on a, on a human level. I just love that stuff. So it was a joy for sure. 
The thing about the UFC that was really unique for me um, is, which was exciting, is just how um, broadly curious the students were. So like the, the, the example I always give is one of the first classes I taught was a, it's kind of a upper level undergraduate course um, in topology, which is a subject that, you know, a mathematician needs to learn and maybe some theoretical physicists need to learn. And practically speaking, nobody else needs to know it. And if you were to go to a, another institution, and, and that includes other equally elite institutions, um, the kids in that class would be, you know, pretty much all math or physics majors. And so here I show up to teach it on the first day at University of Chicago, and I have classics majors and biology majors and political science majors and philosophy majors who are all just really curious about this subject that was, you know, advanced and complicated and very much an elective and totally outside their field of concentration, but they just kind of dug the subject matter. And that was, that was fun. It made teaching harder, right? Because they weren't necessarily steeped in the subject the way that the math majors were, but it made it really fun. I remember office hours were a total blast because they would teach me as much as I would teach them. Uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a really uh, invigorating environment. I was honestly pretty lucky to be there. Well, was it a hard decision to leave? Um, and then you and your wife, I think, moved up to Evanston in 2006. And, and tell us about the transition from the academic world to the political world. Yeah, so the, the geography part is simple. Karen and I got married in 2006, and she was about to start a PhD in history at Northwestern. And so it just felt like, you know, I was, I was at UFC, but I already kind of had one foot in the political world. And so I was on campus twice a week. She was going to be a first year graduate student, you know, on campus every day. It just seemed like, let's go to a place where she can bike to campus and, um, and really be um, immersed in the graduate student culture. Um, but in terms of the transition, you know, like I said earlier, I, I dove into math as a career starting from when I was, you know, 15, let's say, and that was because I loved the subject. And sure enough, I love the subject, but, you know, maybe a 15 year old doesn't know themselves that well. And I found myself as I was going through the education and math feeling like, yeah, the subject's super interesting, but there's all these other kind of more human issues, the social problems of the world around me that I'm I'm really passionate about and, and I feel pretty walled off from them being in this extremely abstract ivory tower environment. And, and, and that manifested itself in a variety of different ways when I was in graduate school and I was kind of searching a little bit for an outlet for my more kind of human and, 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 and public service related um, interests. Um, but then when I came to the UFC, you know, it was 2002, so it was a year after, you know, I arrived in the fall of 02, so a year after the September 11th attacks, and, and half a year before the US went to war in Iraq, and, and it just felt like the nation was kind of coming apart, and there was this, this dramatic dishonesty occurring with horrible, horrible human consequences, and I, this, this switch flipped in my mind, which, you know, it should flip in your mind when you, you know, take government class in the eighth grade or, or something, or fifth grade, not when you're you know, in your mid twenties and a professional, but it, I was a little late, I guess, where I stopped thinking of what was being done by our government as something that they were doing and began thinking of it as something that we were doing. And if it was something that we were doing, I had a responsibility to change it if I felt like it was morally wrong. Now that didn't mean I had to change my profession, but it meant I all of a sudden felt a compulsion 
to be far more directly personally involved in public life. And I started showing up to meetings and doing organizing. And, and, and that ultimately led me to just fall in love with the idea that you could organize ordinary people to make change, that you could you know, have, notwithstanding the complexity of the system and how stuck and controlled everything sometimes feels, if you got a lot of people who just cared passionately about the same thing and were strategic enough and, and uh, persistent enough, you could actually make change. And I, I, I fell in love with that idea and, and doing that work. And that's what ultimately led me to, to run for office. Well, you uh, ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, uh, served in the House, Illinois House and the Illinois Senate. How do you look back on the Springfield years in terms of both um, your kind of indoctrination to public policy, what surprised you, what disappointed you, what excited you? How do you think of the Springfield years? Well, it was, I mean, it was an incredible education. I, I loved the work, loved it. Um, I was there for eight years and honestly, there were two starkly different halves because we had two different governors. Uh, during my first four years, Pat Quinn was the governor and during my second four years, Bruce Rauner was the governor. So, you know, when Pat Quinn was the governor, everything felt very difficult. Uh, you know, we were just kind of beginning to come out of the Great Recession and the budget problems were enormously severe. And, you know, we had Democrats in control and Democrats fighting with Democrats all the time. Um, then of course, Rauner became governor and I didn't realize how good we had it before. And the, the struggle between the, and I, I try to, I have lots of opinions and feelings about this, but I also try to explain it as objectively as, as I can. The, the struggle between Rauner and the legislature was just so damaging to the state. I mean, obviously you're, you know, a, public university. And so you saw it um, in a really, really intense and, and horrible way. Um, but it wasn't limited to that. The, the consequences for social service providers and, and education and the state's budget, it was just, just devastating. And, and it was unbelievably frustrating and painful to see everything so stuck and not really be able to do much about it. But, but you know, broadly speaking, when I think back to those eight years, um, I feel really, it was just exciting to figure out how to make something happen that you thought could help people. You know, I, I passed a lot of legislation and obviously, you know, some of it was pretty inconsequential, right? But some of it really made a difference in people's lives. And there were, there were things that, that I was able to push through that I strongly believed were the right thing to do would make a difference for people. And that, and that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have, hadn't have been there with that passion and that willingness to just kind of put my shoulder to the wheel. And I, I think that's a really important lesson because again, I think politics and government can feel very stuck to people and they are in some circumstances in some really critical circumstances. But I found that, you know, just as one person in the legislature, I could make a difference. And that was a incredible privilege. Well, we've we've talked to several state reps in in, the, in various series, and the one sort of constant is that while there's this almost endless fighting on the kind of the big picture issues of budget and taxes, below those that tier of issues, there's a fair amount of cooperation on scores of issues that are more technical than they are ideological. Um, and I, I remember I read something, an interview you talked about um, in which you were participating in a conference committee. And you said it was just like wonderful experience because you're working across the aisle, across the chambers. And there was this just kind of 
kind of serious people who didn't necessarily agree, just trying to solve problems. Talk about that if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two different components of this that are worth talking about. First of all, there's it's exactly as you said. I, I agree completely. There's there's the issues that make the headlines where the the partisan combatants pick up their artillery and go to war. And then there's like 85% of the issues that aren't like that, um, where there might be a technical issue or there might be even a, an issue that's about policy decisions and values, but it just doesn't line up quite right, left, DR. And there's there's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of good people trying to work together. The, the other thing to say though, and I, I hate to sort of make a fetish out of this because I think we, we sometimes exaggerate the extent to which you know, this is how Washington used to operate, and it's a it's a it's a day that we we rule. But you know, we had social relationships across the aisle. Like one example, and I'll say this particularly given where you're sitting in Carbondale, I think a lot about the really lovely dinner that I had a couple times with Mike Bost. Now, Mike Bost is not somebody with whom I agree with about almost any public policy issue. And by the way, his most famous moment as a elected official prior to becoming a member of Congress was sort of throwing a partisan temper tantrum on the on the floor of the Illinois House and throwing stuff in the air and, and all that. And, you know, it was really great for the cameras. But he was also somebody who behind the scenes, I was able to just have a normal human conversation with. And we didn't try to convince each other about the, you know, enormous number of things we disagreed about. But it also meant that when there was something that we didn't disagree about passionately, we had that foundation that we could draw on to work together. And I think that's good for policymaking. And also, I hate to say this is a very selfish thing to say, but also it's just good for, for us, the legislators themselves as human beings. That, you know, I, I grew so much being exposed to people from all over the state, from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different value systems, all kinds of different priorities. Priorities is another thing about this that's really critical, right? Nobody. Nobody tells you when you're elected to the Illinois legislature that you've got to focus on this one thing. You just sort of bring the thing you personally care about. And the beauty of the legislature is you've got 177 different people who probably have 150 different idiosyncratic sets of passions and interests and things that really they believe will most impact their own communities. And if you go there with an open mind and an open heart, you find yourself learning an awful lot. Now, Mike Boss didn't convince me about any of the values differences that we hold. I hold those values that he disagrees with just as strongly today as I did then, and I bet he does too. But I was able to grow in other ways that were really productive to me as a human being and as a legislator. Well, let's talk about your, um, your, your campaign for mayor of Evanston. We'll have another conversation about your gubernatorial race because that was a whole another story in itself in which, as I said, you ran this really principled and interesting and quite successful campaign, finishing second in a, in a crowded primary. But so in 2021, or probably 2020, you decide to run for, for mayor of Evanston. And your agenda, you said, was bold, progressive city government. And you listed three or four areas in particular. And I wonder if we could talk about them, just uh, kind of just set this up. You talked about public safety, which you were careful to say is beyond just policing. It's a much broader way of approaching uh, the, the, the challenges we face. You talked about climate and sustainability, housing, equity and transparency, economic development. Um, so tell us why you ran for, for, for mayor of Evanston. Well, fundamentally, I felt like this was a 
really big moment for municipal government in a lot of different ways, right? So part of it is, of course, the pandemic, which is, you know, uh, an unspeakable challenge and one that raises the stakes of government, right? You got to get government right in a moment like this. And so that, that I think is obvious, but really critical and, and made it feel like, hey, if, if I do this well, that's going to really help a lot of people. But part of it is that on some, on some policy questions, I just felt like we're at a, at a kind of tipping point moment where good decision-making could really make a difference. Public safety is one, one really critical example where there's a, a conversation going on around the country about what is the right way to provide for public safety. There's been, there's been kind of a trend in one direction for, for 50 years. And I think people are trying to figure out what's the right way to balance our investment. So for example, um, and, and I want to start by saying we've got a, a really good police department at Evanston and, and um, excellent dedicated police officers who are um, really committed to a, a humanistic and sensitive way of, of providing for public safety. Um, but we, we had a, an unspeakable tragedy in town a week ago yesterday uh, that we're still really reeling from. Uh, there was a, a shooting uh, at a gas station where five young people, two uh, young men or boys really, and two young women or girls uh, were targeted. One did not survive. Uh, the other four were all shot as well. One still in critical condition. And so our community is trying to, trying to cope with the fact that, that, that we lost a, a minor and, and this kind of senseless violence can occur. And, and um, we're, we're gonna have to be doing a lot of work to, uh, to figure out how to react to this and how to prevent things like this from occurring in the future. Well, our police department is absolutely critical in, in doing the investigation and they're doing really important good work, but I don't think most people believe that traditional policing could have stopped this from occurring because it was so targeted and so focused. Uh, and even if we tripled the size of our police force, they wouldn't be at every corner all the time. That's just not feasible. And so a different Thing that we need to be doing is more outreach to prevent violence before it occurs. Violence to intervene with disconnected youth who are heading in a troubling direction where people who work with them on the street can see, you know what, if this trajectory continues, this person might be involved in the shooting in six months. Youth who lack job opportunities or youth who perhaps don't recognize that there are job opportunities out there there for them. And so this combination of direct on the street outreach with workforce development work and partnership with, with employers, that's all part of public safety. And if we don't think about those investments as a part of the response to public safety challenges, we're just leaving a lot of solutions on the table and then trying to fit a square peg into a round hole when it comes to deploying the, the uh, capacities that we have built up. So that's an example of, I think, a pivot that's occurring in America right now that's really, really critical and one that is going to happen on the municipal level entirely, nearly. And, and so having municipal leaders who are bold and ambitious and careful and thoughtful is, is I think, going to be really, really impactful. Another example of an issue like this uh, is housing, where, you know, there's a growing affordable housing crisis in this country. And I think a growing recognition that part of that is really about the supply of housing. And so I'll give you an example. And this may not be that applicable in, in a place like Carbondale, given the, the space constraints that we have here that, that, that y'all don't in Carbondale. But, but I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, from a, a modest 
townhome where my family of four lives in a sort of snug but comfortable comfortable situation. And we're, we're able to afford this on our very, very middle-class um, salaries. But the truth is we couldn't afford to live in probably 90% of our own neighborhood. You know, if you look right out the window there, all the houses out there, I could not afford to move to. And the reason for that is that the house that I live in here would be illegal to build right over there. And so we have all these, these rules, these land use uh, ordinances that are, exist in Evanston, but also across the country that are so restrictive about what could be built where that they choke off the supply of affordable housing. And there's a growing recognition about this too that I think is allow, would allow us to make some really bold and ambitious and possibly controversial steps that will ultimately make this com community more affordable and accessible for a lot of people, which I think will be good for us in the long term. So. Anyway, it's a long answer. You ask a policy wonk a policy question and he doesn't know how to shut his mouth. But the bottom line is I just felt like this was a moment where we could really do some exciting things that maybe the window to do that wasn't open five years ago. Maybe it won't be open again in five years. But right now it just felt like, hey, a mayor who does a good job can really help make a pretty big difference. Well, Daniel, let's give us a snapshot of Evanston. I know it's about 12 miles north of Chicago. Um, the Chicago downtown, um, it's about 75,000. Of course, Northwestern is this world-class university. So fill out the profile of Evanston. What should people across Illinois know about your community? Yeah, well, you covered a lot of the high points. We, I'll say we grew a little bit, so we're 78,000 in the new census. We're clinging to that 5% growth. Um, we are, yes, we're about, I guess, 12 miles north of downtown Chicago, but we border Chicago. So, you know, in the world where there's literally hundreds of Chicago suburbs, there's kind of three qualities of Evanston that are relatively central to who we are. One is we border Chicago, we're not far out there. By, by virtue of bordering it, we're right on all the transit lines. So, you know, there's a, you know, the, the, the L train or the subway goes right through Evanston, which is quite unusual for a suburb, but the commuter rail, the Metro also goes through Evanston as well. Uh, we're served by both different bus systems. So we're, we're pretty close in and on the transit lines, which makes us attractive as a, as a bedroom community. So, so, you know, a lot of, you know, back when there was no pandemic, you have a lot of Evanstonians hopping on the train in the morning and, and working downtown Chicago and white collar jobs. Um, second, as you mentioned, uh, Northwestern University. So it's a, you know, it's a elite private research university that, um, you know, obviously it's not, it's not the same size as the public big, big 10 schools. So it doesn't exert quite the same force on the community as, as you know, UIUC does on Urbana-Champaign or frankly that SIU does on Carbondale, but it's, it's a significant, significant factor. And you've got a ton of students, you've got a ton of faculty, you've got a lot of, again, before the pandemic, a lot of travel coming through. And it, you know, I mean, everybody knows the sort of feel of a college town is a little different than the feel of, feel of a non-college town. And we, we have quite a bit of that here in Evanston. And then finally, we're along the lakefront. Uh, and so we have, you know, that's a, just an amenity and a, an attraction that, that most suburbs don't have the good fortune of having and we do. Uh, so that, those are the sort of kind of physical features of the town. Um, we're a very diverse community. Uh, so we have a, a you know, an African-American uh, community in Evanston with deep, deep roots. You know, there are a lot of black Evanstonians whose roots in, in this town go back three or even four or five uh, generations. Uh, there's kind of a proud history of a middle-class black community here. 
uh, and an ugly history of segregation. Uh, and uh, not just segregation, but, but a variety of consequences that come with that, like segregated schools and educational inequities and um, really significant gaps in other public services. You know, just look at kind of where the sidewalks are, are well built in town and you can see what the historically black neighborhoods are. Um, we're in aggregate an affluent community, but that's not universal. So there's middle-class people uh, and there's real poverty in Evanston as well. Um, and we're a very progressive community politically. So Joe Biden got north of 90% of the vote in Evanston and uh, we're represented at every layer of government exclusively by Democrats. In fact, when I won the race to join the Illinois House of Representatives in 2010, that flipped the last uh, seat at any level of government that overlapped Evanston and was occupied by, by a Republican. So that's sort of a, a window into it and it's, um, it's a unique community for those reasons. If you look at all those different features and put them all together, you got, you tell a story that is different than any other community in the, in the state. And therefore there's a lot of people who are here because they really want to be in Evanston. Uh, and that leads to a very engaged community, right? It's not so much that people just happen to be on this side of the border or that, they see themselves as Evanstonians and so they participate in Evanston's public life in a very, very intense and passionate way, which makes my job much harder and much better, much more interesting, much richer, and much more, um, much more meaningful. If someone were to go to a diner in Evanston now and, and talk to people and say, you know, what are the two or three issues related to the city of Evanston is our top of mind? What, what do you think they would say? Well, today there's absolutely no question. They talk about public safety and they would tell you about the shooting uh, that occurred eight days ago. It's just, you know, understandably it's on all, well, it's on my mind as a resident and a parent uh, too, but it's on my mind as mayor a lot because you see it's on the minds of our community tremendously. So that that is clearly at the top of the list. You know, we're, we're also a community like many, of course, that's very passionate about education. Um, not only because Northwestern's here, but our public schools are a center of our communal life. Um, we have, you know, a, a high school district, which is one high school, which is a wonderful school, Evanston Township High School, and then a K through eight district, which with, of course, you know, many more schools than that. And, you know, like in a lot of places, education is a, a lightning rod. You know, the elections for school board last April were very, very contentious with a lot of conversation about um, curriculum and school reopenings and how to handle COVID. And you know, that, that issue is just always on folks' minds here. And um, the success of our schools is fundamental to what, what makes people want to be here. Well, you've been mayor since uh, since May. What um, what surprises you about the job? Uh, what what has sort of unfolded as you expected? Well, let me answer the surprise part first in two parts. Uh, there is the stuff that I just didn't know to expect, but if I run for re-election, will not surprise me. And then there's the stuff that came at me that was a surprise because it were just events that cropped up. So I would say coming from the legislature, um, the, the shift from the legislature to municipal government that's been really interesting and a, 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 a very exciting education for me is that people's involvement is, is different. Uh, people's involvement is much more hands-on. Uh, and I think there's almost less of an expectation of representative government Right? When I was a legislator, people 
had opinions. They, we, I was got a ton of public input. I engaged with the public all the time. But ultimately, they were trying to persuade me because they really felt like they'd elected me to go be the representative. Whereas local government is much more participatory. And so it's not so much, we're going to vote for you and then send you off to City Hall to run the government. It's, we're going to vote for you and then sit with you at the table and work with you to make sure the government is running the way that we want it to be run, which is, again, it's a different model. And it's, it's really uh, invigorating to, to work through that as someone who's new to that, that kind of situation. Um, but then just, you know, it just feels like it's been a nonstop series of uh, surprises. So, uh, you know, some, some good, some terrible, some just surprising. Uh, but one, one uh, episode that has really been central in my time as mayor that is uh, uh, catastrophic uh, is that um, I guess less than two months before I took office, um, it emerged that there had been a, a terrible, uh, uh, terrible allegations of misconduct on the lakefront. So I mentioned that we have, we're on the lake. Well, that a lot of that beach is city property and the beaches are maintained by the city. So the lifeguards and everyone who works there are city employees. Well, there were horrifying, genuinely horrifying allegations of, of sexual misconduct uh, among uh, employees with other employees on the lakefront. And it turned out that though those allegations had been made almost a year before I became the mayor, they'd kind of been, uh, they'd not come to light. They'd, I would argue they'd even really been suppressed by some. Um, and so we had to figure out, you know, how to take the appropriate action regarding the substance of the allegations, but also how to get to the bottom of how something like that could have not come to light given how unbelievably critical it was. And so we're still working through that. We have an independent, you know, highly respected firm doing an investigation, but that, that obviously kind of became a focal point that was a, was a tremendous surprise. Uh, the city manager uh, left uh, relatively early on. We're now embarking, we're now kind of halfway through, I would say, a search for a new city manager, which is of course a critical, critical decision for the city. So just there's been a lot of uh, fluidity that, that's been um, stuff that got thrown at me that I couldn't have possibly expected. Uh, in terms of what was like I expected, you know, First of all, there's a lot of great people, a lot of great people who work for the city, a lot of great people who live in the city and want to step up and be involved in the conversations. And that's been really just a, a joy. But also in terms of the issues that I thought were critical, they have been the issues that I still believe to be critical and that I still believe our community believes are critical. Public safety, climate, housing, equity. These are, these are the things that I think, the reason the job is exciting for me is that I think that if we get those right, we make a big difference. I think the community believes the same thing. And when those two views are aligned, you have an opportunity to really do something good. I read an interview in which you said the one thing that you've really been excited about is the fact that there's there's nine aldermen, as I understand it. And maybe in the past, there had been sort of, you know, two competing blocks that just kind of hammered each other back and forth. But now uh, you use the word fluidity, that they're now kind of shifting coalitions that are that are focused on specific issues and problems. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because historically in Evanston, and I think this is, you know, look, I'm a partisan guy, I'm a Democrat, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with partisanship, but but most municipal governments are nonpartisan, and and the upside of a nonpartisan government should be exactly that, right? That you don't have trench warfare on this side versus that side on every issue, and instead, you know, 
hey, maybe on this issue, here's your majority that's going to work together and advance a particular vision. And on some different issue, a totally different coalition comes together. That's how Evanston city government used to work. But in recent years, they had kind of moved away from that. I don't know if that's true in, in other municipalities. It may be, be a sign of our polarized time, or maybe it's just a coincidence that that happened to occur in Evanston. But in any case, in the last several years, there kind of had emerged two blocks that were really at odds with each other. And in the last, you know, three years, two years before I became mayor, if you said, hey, Daniel, there was a 7-2 vote at city council today, I could tell you with 90% certainty who were the seven and who were the two. If you said there's a 6-3 vote, I would be pretty darn sure who the six were and who the three were. And then in the campaign that happened, you know, before the April election, it kind of looked the same way. The two factions were kind of duking it out. But now that the election's over and folks have taken office, you can still see those coalitions, which is appropriate and healthy. I'm not, I'm not asking people to not have close colleagues who they tend to align with, but on different issues, the, the coalitions have really shifted. On issues of kind of government transparency, there's a particular block that feels a particular way on issues of affordability, that block splits when it comes to kind of housing policy and a different majority is formed. And I, I just think that's really healthy. There's only nine of them, 10 counting me, we all have to be able to work together if we want to be able to make progress on all the different issues that come before us. And to me, that, as you said, the fluidity, the, the coalitions shifting depend on, depending on the issue, it's a good sign in terms of what we're going to be able to accomplish, but it's also just a sign of, of integrity, right? That the council members aren't just siding with the person they like or siding against the person they tend to disagree with. They're figuring out how to best advance their own values and the interests of the ward they represent and working with anybody to get that done. And I, I think they're to be commended for that. Well, this year, Evanston was named an All-American City, which uh, won a lot of a, a attention, I think, across the, the state. Um, and also related to that was um, the, the work of an equity and an empowerment commission that was instrumental in putting together a reparations program Tell us about uh, maybe just more broadly the All-American City designation and then the reparations piles. We've gotten a lot of questions on those and I'm sure that's, that's something that um, is, you know, what Evanston has become really known for throughout the country. Yeah, well, the All-American City designation was a great honor. Uh, I believe we were the only city in Illinois, one of, uh, I think, 10 or fewer in the country to have this designation. And, you know, we just feel really proud of it. We think that it's, uh, both a recognition specifically around our reparations work of the fact that this little town of 78,000 people is able to take a first step on a truly weighty, pivotal national issue and, and really hopefully lead the country and in, in coming to grips with this question. Um, and it's also simultaneously a recognition of the other things that we do well, the fact that we're a great place to live, that we're a desirable community that has great schools and um, just as a, a place that you know people certainly across the Chicago area tend to see as, oh, hey, that's a place I'd like to move to. Um, which brings us back to the question of why housing affordability is so important. When people wanna come be where you are, you know, people are ultimately our greatest strength. And so the more people that we make up it's an affordable for, the stronger we'll be. Um, our, our reparations program is something we take great pride in. Uh, I, I don't wanna say, I'll say this because I think it's really important um, for an issue as significant as this. As proud as I am of this and as much as I'm about to say about it, I deserve very little credit for it. It was 
really set in motion and, and mostly put in place before I became the mayor, that there's still tons of work to be done. And it was really a member of city council, Robin Rue Simmons, uh, who represented the fifth ward of Evanston in the previous four years, who, who carried the, the torch on this. So I just, I don't wanna be mistaken as for taking credit where it's not due, but I, I am incredibly proud of the work our city's doing on this. So, so first of all, reparations is obviously something that's discussed a lot around the country. And I think it's usually discussed as kind of a theoretical thing. What would it mean? Why should we do it? Who's responsible for it? Um, do I really need to be a part of paying reparations because of something that maybe my ancestors did or didn't do? There's a, all these questions that are looming and they're, they're ethical questions and political questions and values questions and they're practical questions and there's legal questions. And what Evanston decided really under the leadership of council member Rue Simmons was, you know, those questions are really critical. And we're going to need to keep on discussing those questions. And it's going to be years, frankly, that we're going to have to talk that through. But we can't afford to wait until all of those questions are answered perfectly because they're never going to be totally resolved. We also have to be willing to take a first step. And so that's what Evanston has done, is taken a first tangible step toward actually providing reparations. So let me just, if you don't mind, say a word sure. about how it works, because there's a trillion questions you might have. First of all, and this is really critical. Uh, as strongly as I personally feel, and I think most Evanstonians and most people feel about the heinous crime of slavery, uh, we don't believe that Evanston has the tools to be the entity to repair the harm that was done by slavery. So that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're doing here. But unfortunately, the city of Evanston itself has taken action that also caused significant harm that needs to be repaired. So there is a, a really... Uh, powerful uh, research that was done by a uh, local archivist <clears throat> that <clears throat> documented all of the actions taken by the city of Evanston between 1919 and 1969. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that the city of Evanston as a government, the corporate body itself, that <clears throat> really exacerbated black white gaps and particularly around housing. So where this was a time that segregation was the norm, that redlining was happening, that Racist homeowners associations had exclusionary uh, covenants that uh, realtor groups were steering African-American buyers in one direction and white buyers in a different direction. All that stuff happened without the city of Evanston's cooperation, but there were a number of concrete ways the city of Evanston was cooperating and was involved in enforcing this stuff. And so the argument goes, hey, listen, we took specific actions that exacerbated the black-white wealth gap. And so we have a moral responsibility to repair that harm that we did. And then the second part of this is that in the middle of those discussions, cannabis was legalized. And so that created a new revenue stream, sales tax from cannabis. And given the racist ramifications, if not perhaps even intent of the war on drugs, it seems like using that revenue to repair this harm made sense as well. And so the basic program is uh, the first $10 million that come in from cannabis sales tax revenue will be put in a reparations fund. Uh, and that fund will be allocated to close these gaps and, and repair parts of the harm that the city government did. Now, of the $10 million, only the first $400,000, the first 4% has actually been allocated and that's being, you know, the applications have come in for that now. So there's a ton of decisions left to make about how to spend this money, how to best engage in the real work of repair. But uh, the fact that we're willing and able to take these first tangible steps, I think is a really critical, critical thing for our community. 
And to look at it in kind of a specific way. So yeah. the eligible people get 25000 um, sort of a housing allowance, is it? I mean, it's not a cash payment, but it can be used for a down payment, home repairs, et cetera. Great question. So the $10 million commitment is sort of relatively high level it's for, for reparations. And it talks about the different uh, inequities that have been perpetuated by the city around housing and education and health and so forth. The first 4% that's been allocated is a specific program. And the way that program works is if you're eligible and you're eligible based on being an Evanston resident who's a descendant of an Evanston resident who lived here at the time uh, when those acts were perpetrated by the city or perhaps you yourself lived here then if you're of that age, an eligible resident can qualify for a $25,000 grant toward a down payment on a home or toward rehab of a home. And the point is, hey, since the most clearly documented nexus between city action and these inequities is in the area of housing, folks thought that the first step toward repair ought to be in the area of housing. And then I know you've talked about further steps. I mean, what, what are some of the things that are contemplated? How does this, how, how, what is the discussion about how this program might expand? Well, I think you gotta think in concentric circles out from, from where we are now. How different do we wanna be? The first thing to say is this initial $400,000 is not a lot of money. And there were way, 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 way more applications than there were slot. So you could even just do more of that exact thing. The next sort of more different thing you might say is, hey, let's stay in the housing field, but some folks don't own or don't plan to own rental assistance or landlord assistance. There's other ways to assist other populations in the housing field. And then further out, you might say, what about other areas where the uh, city is documented to have uh, exacerbated these inequities, like in education, for instance, like in public health, should we set up a parallel program in those areas? And then the last thing to say, and you alluded to this earlier, is there absolutely is a constituency that believes passionately that reparations must be a cash payment. That to make it a part of a program that says, here's how you spend the money is necessarily uh, too restrictive and patronizing. And really the way to repair the harm is to give someone a cash payment that allows them to determine what their needs are with those funds. And so. I think all those different things are gonna be on the table. We have a reparations committee of seven people who right now is focused on getting out that first 4% of the funding, but they will be um, really taking the lead and then figuring out what's to be done with the next tranche of resources. And I thought I saw in one of your white papers on your website that there's some tax implications with a, with a cash payment that need to be thought through pretty clearly. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And so um, there's, there are some people who passionately believe that a cash payment is morally necessary. There's others who believe that it, equally passionately that a cash payment is, is impractical, uh, some for tax reasons, uh, right? So perhaps, so, so there's a, a strong argument to be made that a cash payment would be taxable income, whereas these other forms of in-kind help are not, um, at least if you structure them properly. Uh, additionally, I think some people have legal concerns. I mean, there's no question we're going to be sued. The second a check is cut here, we're going to be sued. Threats have already been made. I expect those threats will be followed up on. And <clears throat> we need to design a program that we believe is as strongly defendable in court as possible. There's no question that when you are allocating resources based upon race, and there are explicit racial definitions in this program, you're exposing yourself to legal threat. And so the defense here is that this is not random race-based allocation of resources. It's a specific uh, 
repair of a harm that was caused by us as a city government. And so that, and I'm not a lawyer to be clear uh, at all, but what some attorneys tell me is that once you're going down that path of defense, there is an argument to be made that connecting the benefit to the harm as closely as possible uh, could be helpful in mounting a legal defense. Let's talk for a second about Northwestern and its importance to Evanston. Um, and I, uh, I said an older brother went to Northwestern, so I spent a lot of time up there back in the day. And um, and I gathered that like a lot of you know communities that have a major university, there's enormous benefits, also inevitable tensions. Um, you know, I think there's always a discussion if Northwestern is making as much a contribution to Evanston as it should. Um, I think also in the reparations uh, realm, there is the discussion about whether North Northwestern should should add a revenue stream to this. Tell me about uh, tell me about how you look at Northwestern and its role in Evanston's life. Well, just like you said, it I think you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, Evanston. First of all, Evanston and Northwestern have a not just a deep relationship but a long relationship, right? The the in fact. John Evans, who turns out to have been an absolute monstrosity of a person, but that's a different story. Uh, John Evans, after whom Evanston is named, was the founder of the university. Um, and, and so, and you know, Northwestern is in the city charter. Uh, and so we have a very, very, very long, uh, deeply intertwined relationship. And I, I think fundamentally Evanston doesn't thrive without a thriving Northwestern and Northwestern doesn't thrive without a thriving Evanston. I think those, those things are clear. Uh, and so ultimately I think these two institutions need to root for each other's success. Um, and I can explain why and all that if you're interested, but I think it's probably pretty obvious to a lot of folks. On the other hand, there are inevitable tensions and those tensions are real. Uh, some of them are just about cash, right? It's a giant institution that occupies a ton of our land and, and consumes city services and doesn't pay property tax. And um, we have high property taxes. And so people look around and say, well, now hold on, that's, you know, challenging for me to pay such high property taxes when that giant institution over there doesn't pay anything. Uh, like most uh, affluent private schools, Northwestern makes some payments to the city of Evanston. Uh, I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that compared to their financial peers, uh, they pay quite a lot less than others do. And, you know, when I, every time there's an article in the New Haven, Connecticut newspaper about the enormous amount of money that Gail is giving New Haven, I get some emails from constituents saying, well, now hold on, why isn't Northwestern doing something similar? And, and it's a fair question. And so, you know, there are plenty of issues where we sit across the table from each other and my job is to drive a hard bargain. Uh, and I do that um, strongly but I do it with an understanding that the best outcome is an outcome where we both do well, because again, a thriving Northwestern brings people and energy and ideas and frankly dollars to the city of Evanston as well. Mr. Mayor, let's go to a couple of questions. We have a, a question from Mary and Mary in Carbondale who asks about said mayors of at least 30 cities are supporting the idea of guaranteed incomes. Um, and just ask what your thoughts are. I know Evanston actually has a, a pilot project yeah. in this in this area. Tell tell us how that works and, and what your thoughts are about it. Thank you, Mary. And we're just, uh, I'm very excited about this. Um, and I'm actually, uh, I'm a member of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. And my, when I last checked, I was the only Illinois mayor who was a member of that, though that may have changed. It's actually a very useful, useful group that you know, provides a lot of assistance. So the idea of a guaranteed income is 
you know, basically that uh, we have focused so much of our kind of social programmatic thinking on how to design specific programs for specific people that we've forgotten that just giving people money is incredibly efficient. It's efficient, it's simple, and it's, this is not an idea that's been tried that for that long in this country, but the first recent big pilot in Stockton, California had great, great outcomes that genuinely showed that the folks who were given these cash payments, and I think there it was $500 a month, um, had really significant changes in their outcomes on a variety of different measurements. So, so that's the basic idea. And we're doing a pilot. And this is, by the way, a partnership with Northwestern. Northwestern provided the seed money of $300,000 and the city topped it up with $700,000 of Federal uh, Rescue Plan Act funding. And it's gonna be a, a year long pilot uh, to provide $500 monthly payments to, uh, let's see, uh, 150 residents. Uh, who are um, coming from three different categories. One will be seniors, one will be the undocumented, and uh, one will be disconnected youth, which we talked earlier about in the public safety context. Uh, and we're gonna be doing it in partnership with really strong research from Northwestern to evaluate what works and what doesn't. And hopefully it'll work well and we'll build a case for doing more of it in the future. But if it doesn't, that'll be an important uh, lesson as well. So it's a, it's a really exciting idea and I think you know, there was such a shift in this country in the, in the 80s, especially of, of the kind of demonizing welfare and making it seem like if the government gives people money, then the money will be wasted and people will game the system that we forgot that if you spend, you know, a million dollars designing a program that gets $400,000 of help to people, that's a lot more wasteful than anything that would just involve simpler cash payments. So I'm, I'm excited about what I think this could be. I have a question from uh, Rockford Valerie, and we've had lots of questions on reparations, but hers is, is somewhat emblematic. She said, why just African-Americans? Why not others, Native Americans? Why penalize modern-day tax, taxpayers who had no role in slavery, nor to their 20th century immigrant ancestors? Um, answer that as you will. Mr. No, it's a great question, Valerie. It's a totally fair question. And I think, you know, I think it's important to be willing to enter into these conversations openly. Um, so to me the critical thing here is that the city of Evanston has documented specific acts that we took as a city government to enforce segregation and there is tons of evidence that that segregation that occurred you know let's say two generations ago is reverberating in the wealth gap that exists today. And so that, that to me is, is the key point. So I'll give you a counterexample. Um, I'm Jewish. Um, Jews were not really welcome in the neighborhood I live in today in Evanston. And I don't know the history well, but I wouldn't be surprised if the city government helped make sure that that happened. But there's no documented connection between that and any inequities that exist today. And so there's no harm that was done to me by the city of Evanston. It's just a, a, a shameful act in the past. But what we have today is the shameful acts that the city of Evanston perpetrated are reverberating today. And there's a, there's a gap today in, for example, housing value that occurs because of the segregation that the city of Evanston itself perpetrated. So I feel like we owe a debt. And that we owe a debt as the city. 
It's not that I personally, as a taxpayer, owe the debt. I wasn't here when those things happened, but it doesn't matter. I'm part of the city and the city did those things and people are hurting today because of them. And so we have an obligation to repay that debt. And so that's that's the lens or the test I would use when asking other questions about similar things one might do. Does that mean there's no other similar program that we ought to create? No, it doesn't mean that. We ought to ask those questions honestly. And uh, particularly when it comes to indigenous people, given the given John Evans history, I think there's a really important conversation to be had. But I, I don't think it's just about any inequity or any unjust act. It's about the documented unjust acts that were carried out by the city itself that resulted in equities that are being felt today. And that's what says, hey, we've got this debt that we have to repay. During most of our conversations with mayors, at some point I hear a fairly passionate uh, critique of Springfield, which is code <laughs> for state government. Um, you know, and I, uh, so tell me, you know, particularly having, you know, worked eight years in Springfield and now serving as mayor, what, I mean, it, it, as a mayor, what can Springfield do that it is not doing to help you better run the city of Evanston? I mean, I, it's funny, right? Cause we set up these systems with these sort of separation of powers. And of course you hear about separation of powers about the Senate versus the house and the executive versus the legislative, but, if, but the different layers of government are very, very similar. Um, and it's very customary for um, municipal governments to complain about unfunded mandates. As a state legislator, I was supposed to complain to my congresswoman about unfunded mandates. And you know, some of them are good and some of them are bad. Let me give you an example. Legislation passed in Springfield, um, it was signed into law by Governor Pritzker this summer um, to mandate the replacement of every lead uh, pipe, all the lead service lines uh, over the course of the next 35 years. That is an unfunded mandate that's placed upon the city of Evanston from the state of Illinois. It's expensive, it's burdensome, it's gonna be hard, and it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do because lead is poison. It poisons children's brains. And so there was some pressure on me as a mayor to call my legislators and, and, and oppose that, and I declined because it's the right thing to do. Now, does that mean that Springfield's all is right? No, let me tell you, I was there. They are not always right <laughs> at all. Um, but I think this, this sort of, you know, tensions about mandates and funding, um, I think it's really beneficial having been on both sides that I can kind of see both sides of that. Um, one thing that I think is really critical when, especially when you're talking about things that have financial consequences for municipalities is, Springfield operates on a ridiculous uh, rhythm, right? So the, the legislative session ends at the end of May. And you know the amount of work that's done between June 1st and May 25th in Springfield is probably less than the amount of work that's done between May 26th and May 31st. And when you're cramming your whole year's work into less than a week like that, it just means that things get rushed. And in the last minute, hugely important decisions can get made with essentially no consideration because if, if a really, 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 really important thing is jammed into a bill with a slightly even more important thing, that number two thing kind of gets sort of lost in the shuffle. And so I think where everybody could be served better by Springfield and, and local government is a clear example of this is if something's super important, 
to a constituency, make sure we're at the table. Make sure that we're talking through the consequences. Be willing to do something we don't like, but only because you understand exactly why we don't like it and you've thought through the costs and benefits and you're willing to do it. Not because, oh, well, it's 11.45 and the session adjourns in 15 minutes, so I guess we got to vote yes. So that would be my plea on behalf of, of municipalities, on behalf of local governments, but on behalf of all constituencies, just to make sure that the, the abruptness and the rash nature of the policymaking process doesn't create really serious problems. Well, we could go on for a long time. We have lots to talk about. But let me ask you finally, I mean, how do you like to relax and unwind? I see a lot of books behind you. Are those <laughs> relaxation and unwinding? Or uh, So tell me a little bit about how you, uh, Evanston obviously has some amazing lakefront. I'm sure that'd be nice to get out there. So t tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I do love to read. I uh, actually, it's funny. I, I don't. I think mostly you've got nonfiction behind me, and for for a lot of my life in public service, I just read only nonfiction. I I realized six months ago, I miss fiction. So I've I've started to kind of diversify my reading a little bit. I'm reading novels again. It's very exciting. Um, you know, I've um, family. My kids are eleven and thirteen. We love love to still spend time together while while we can. I do love the outdoors, you know, love to be on the lakefront in the summertime, love the, love to, to run when I'm disciplined enough and the weather's good enough. And our family has recently taken up rock climbing as a, as a sort of surprising hobby. So that's been, uh, that's been terrifying, but also delightful. Great, great. Well, Mr. Mayor, when, when COVID allows, we would love to coax you back to Carbondale and, and visit with the community, um, students at SIU, um, just, uh, it'd be the Institute would love to host you for a conversation, um, because there's so much interesting things that you're involved in that we'd like to learn more about. I would love that. I've loved every visit to Carbondale. I, you know, uh, growing up in a, you know, a Midwestern public university college town, I feel real at home in Carbondale and, you know, my great friend, I can't let a meeting with the public, the Paul Simon Institute end without talking about my great friend, Sheila Simon, who I um, love to have an excuse to visit as well. So um, when, when the health uh, protocols make it make sense, say the word and I'll, I'll be there. Okay. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to time that with the, the uh, performance of one of uh, Sheila's band. Maybe we could uh, have <laughs> her do a concert or something. Perfect. I'll be in the front row. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.